The storms of life are well with my soul. They happen, and uh, I'm content to stick with God through those storms. But uh, I'm also, uh, you know, it's pretty well with my soul when we got weather like this. Um, it's pretty nice uh, today, so thank you guys for joining us. It's nice to be able to open up the windows and get some fresh air flowing through here. Usually while I'm up here, I'm kind of roasting, but up here today it's maybe a little bit chilly, but um, that's okay. I'll take the nice weather. Uh, anyway, you know, there's, um, there's an old saying that, uh, that misery loves company. Everybody, everybody's heard that saying, right? right? Misery loves company. And, uh, you know, it's a saying that's kind of endured the test of time. Uh, I've been hearing it since I was a little kid, and that's long enough for me. But, um, you know, it's probably endured the test of time because I think in general it's, it's true um, about the way people feel about misery. For someone, for example, who is as competitive as I can be sometimes, and uh, I'm just going to confess to you guys that sometimes I have this tendency to just be way too competitive. Um, but for someone who's as competitive as I can be at times, there's nothing worse than putting a lot of time and energy into something only to experience failure, right? I mean, that's, that's bad enough. When I've invested myself into something and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't work out. But it's like salt in an open wound when I've messed up or I've failed at doing something and somebody alongside me has done great. It's like misery loves company. So I'm, I'm wishing that they would fail too. That's the competitive aspect of humanity. We, we don't like to be the only ones to fail. We don't like to be the only ones to mess up. We don't like to be the only ones who are sinners. We, we, like to, we like to see other people around us uh, falling into the same traps, failing when we fail. Uh, but yeah, when somebody else succeeds when we're failing, man, that, that's hard to swallow. I mean, don't, don't you hate it when that happens? I, I, I hate it when that happens. And conversely, if you hate it when it happens as much as I do, you know that it's a real struggle against feeling all proud and, and smug when I'm the one who succeeds and somebody else has, has failed. Uh, that's called pride, and it's something that I would say we all um, have to be on guard against, vigilant guard against in, in one way or another, because Jesus has made it perfectly clear for us in our previous passages leading up to this point that there is no place for selfish pride in his kingdom. It's diametrically opposed to the humility that's required to follow Jesus. It's the world's definition of greatness as being better than everybody else, but God's definition of greatness as being the least. See, pride, what pride does is it essentially builds this invisible fortress of security around us, and our tendency is to lock ourselves in that fortress, but you know, while, while that makes us feel all safe and secure, it also prevents us from going out and serving the way that Jesus has instructed us to serve and the way that he has repeatedly, time after time through our study of Mark here, demonstrated, and now he's instructed it. See, ultimately, pride doesn't protect us from anything. It only sets us up for failure. It's, it's sin. It sets us up for, for disappointment at best. We've seen that the disciples have had some, some serious issues with pride, like since the moment they started following Jesus. They've had these issues with pride. But really, it all came to a head in our previous lesson, lesson uh, the lesson we had last week, number 26, this is number 27, uh, while the disciples were walking on the roads to Capernaum, arguing amongst one another about which of them was the greatest. I mean, of all things to argue about, that's what they're arguing about. Which, which of them is the greatest? And we saw that this was after all of them, with the possible exception of, 
James and John, this was after all of them, had made complete fools of themselves over the past couple verses. Uh, Peter had suggested that Jesus was on par with Moses and Elijah. He says, let's build three tabernacles. Jesus, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, as if they are all on level ground. So Peter messed up there. And then they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And there are the nine disciples who didn't go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, trying to cast a demon out of this boy and failing. They're not doing it. They're, they're trying to do it by their own power, by their own authority, rather than relying on God to do the work that only God is really capable of doing, and so they failed. So keep this context in mind today uh, because it's going to be important. Now, Jesus responded to the, the disciples having this conversation about which of them was the greatest by calling them out on it. He wasn't with them while they were having this conversation, but he was completely aware of this conversation. And so when they get to the house, he calls them out on it. What were you guys talking about on the road? And they, they didn't want to answer. And so rather than, than scolding them, for wanting to be the greatest. He instead tells them, okay, if this is what you want, this is the way to do it. This is, this is the key to open this door. If you want to be the greatest, here's how it works. It'll correspond to your service to others and your willingness to be the least among everyone else. And I don't know, but uh, you know, how many of us today would, uh, would be the first to volunteer to be the least? I mean, if you, if you were asked, you know, uh, we're going to arrange a hierarchy here where we've got the most important and the least important, who would put their hand up first? I mean, our tendency wouldn't be to do that. We might think, oh, Jesus said to do that, but, you know, it, it kind of takes a mental check rather than being instinctive for us. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus basically told us that the world's definition of greatness is diametrically opposite God's definition of greatness, and there, there's no overlap. There's no area of overlap between the world's definition of greatness and God's definition of greatness. They are just night and day, totally different. And this is going to be something that we come back to at least a couple times over the course of the next chapter or two. And so it's going to be a lesson, actually, as we're going to see next chapter, uh, that James and John will especially demonstrate a serious need for. Now, as as the disciples are, are gathered around Jesus, as he's talking to them about God's definition of greatness redefining greatness for them, by the way, uh, John is now going to speak up. And in fact, uh, not only does he, does he speak up, but he interrupts this discussion about defining greatness. He interrupts Jesus to, uh, he, he says something that kind of implies some questions, and we're going to get to that. But uh, yeah, he interrupts Jesus. You know, Peter gets a lot of slack for, you know, uh, putting his foot in his mouth all the time. But I think John, uh, you know, it, it's, it's his turn. Um, you know, maybe foot and mouth syndrome is contagious, which is great, by the way, if, if misery truly does love company. Peter's got to be thinking, yes, this wasn't me. So uh, let's see what John has to say here in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, to Jesus. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Now, that's, a, that's a really interesting comment um, that he made. It, it seems like it, it should be a question, and we're going to get to this. There are some implicit questions in there. John wants to know how it's possible. H- how did this even happen? How was this other person casting out demons, but it's delivered more as a statement? Now, keep in mind, that John is, uh, he's, he's probably pretty young here. He's, he's a young teenager at this point. He's probably not any older than uh, Peyton or, or Caleb. He's 
probably around Cheyenne Savannah's age, would be my guess. He's a young, young teenager, 13, maybe 14. Remember, he writes the book of Revelation, and this is written 60-plus years later. So at this point, he's still a child, basically. In our society, he would be viewed as a child. At this point, he's probably, in, in Israelite society, he's probably viewed as a man. He's probably 13 Maybe 14. We, we don't know exactly. But uh, he is pretty young here. And so with that in mind, you kind of pick up on the juvenile nature of the statement. It, it's juvenile. You know what he's doing here? He's tattling. He, th- this guy was, I'm telling Jesus, Jesus, this guy was casting out demons. I, I'm going to tell Jesus. And so, yeah, so he, he goes and he tattles on, uh, on this other guy who's casting out demons. So why does... John even bring this up. It seems like a weird place for him to interject this. Why, why does he interject it here? What does this have to do with uh, you know, Jesus' instruction on, on serving and, and greatness by God's definition? Well, if we back up a verse to verse 37, we see Jesus telling the disciples, whoever receives one child like this in my name, that's the key there, receives me. That's in verse 37. So John's thinking, oh, in Jesus' name. Wait a minute, that reminds me of something. We, we saw this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so what, what John does is he, he spills the beans for the whole group, uh, speaking on their behalf, and they got to be sitting there thinking, thanks, John. Except for Peter. Peter's sitting there thinking, thanks, John. Uh, so, so yeah, he, he, he spills the beans. He lets the cat out of the bag inadvertently, I'm sure. The cat is out of the bag, though. And so he tells Jesus that they tried to stop this person from ministering in Jesus' name. Wow. Um, man, the, the crazy thing about this is, uh, is that the disciples didn't try to stop this person because he was doing anything wrong. No, what, what John says here is that they were trying to stop this guy because he wasn't following them. You, you catch that? He says he wasn't following us. He's not following the disciples and Jesus. So, see, the disciples had, uh, you know, they, they basically, and this is the reason they failed at casting out the demon, you know, just a few verses back. Uh, they had made their ministry more about them. Their ministry was centered on them rather than being centered on Jesus. And John doesn't say that this guy uh, wasn't following Jesus. There's no indication here that this guy wasn't following Jesus. In fact, uh, I would say that he was following Jesus, not in the physical or geographical sense that the disciples were necessarily. In other words, maybe he wasn't following Jesus around from place to place, but it's possible that he heard Jesus teaching at some point. He put his faith in God, and, and this is his ministry uh, as a result of his faith. So, this is really ironic also, by the way, uh, because nine of the disciples had just recently tried to cast out a demon from, from this boy, and they had failed. So there were nine of them, right? Here was somebody who was succeeding. There were nine of them who failed, and one person by himself was succeeding in doing what the nine together couldn't do. Man, don't you hate it when that happens? I mean, obviously John did, and and so did the other disciples, and that's why they they tried to stop this guy. Um, Envy, uh, not holy envy, not holy jealousy. Uh, This was sinful pride. You know, John has revealed, in this one sentence, John has revealed so many theological uh, errors and and mess-ups. You know, maybe he's caught up to Peter in terms of, you know, who can mess things up the most with this one sentence. But truth be told, I think that we all instinctively have this penchant, this inclination to respond in similar ways 
under similar circumstances. It's part of our flesh nature to be prideful and to, for us to succeed to be the greatest, right? Now, th- this other guy who was casting out demons that they saw, he, he wasn't, this wasn't a circus act. You know, th- this guy wasn't a fraud. Uh, it was a legitimate ministry. He wasn't doing it for attention. He wasn't doing it for money. There, there's no indication of any of that stuff. In fact, he's successfully casting out demons, which indicates he was legit, completely legit. This was a legitimate ministry that the disciples had tried to bring an end to. And the fact that this guy was successful has been troublesome to the disciples. So the question I think John is really trying to get at here is, A, did we do the right thing? Jesus. When we stopped this guy, did we do the right thing? And B, how was this happening? So let's see how Jesus responds. Verses 39 and 40. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. So Jesus has answered both of these implicit questions here. Did they do the right thing? No. No, they didn't do the right thing. They should have let this person continue in his ministry because his ministry wasn't opposed to the ministry of Jesus. It was an extension of Jesus' ministry because he's doing it in Jesus' name. And how was it possible for, Jesus, for this person to do it? Same thing. He's doing it in Jesus' name, by Jesus' authority. He's an extension of Jesus' ministry, and he was on the same side that Jesus was, and he was on the same side that the disciples were on. Doing his ministry in the name of Jesus means, basically, he's doing it by Jesus' authority, rather than doing it by his own authority. Remember, the disciples had tried to cast out this unclean spirit a few verses back by their own authority. And Jesus corrected them, saying, no, this is something that only God does, and you've got to rely on God, and that's what this guy was doing. So Jesus says that no one who can perform a miracle in his name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of him. What does that mean? It means that a person's heart, uh, this this guy's heart was in the right place and that his actions were driven by his faith in Jesus. The spirits that were being cast out are proof that this person was operating out of faith. He was doing it the right way. So this this lesson, the lesson of this uh, two-verse dialogue is really just a reminder that it's so easy for us to make our ministry about something other than Jesus. And really, when we make uh, anything that we do about something or someone other than Jesus, we're no better than John. We're right in his shoes. In fact, we're in the shoes of of all the disciples because they've all made that mistake. And I suppose that John maybe deserves a little bit of of credit, maybe a I don't know, a little bit of recognition for at least being honest. The truth is that most people aren't willing to be so open and honest with or about Jesus. As a church, it's all got to be about Jesus. Nobody else. Nothing else. Only Jesus. It's not about numbers. It's not about how many people are here. It's not about how good or how bad the message is. The question is this, is Jesus being honored and exalted above everything else and nobody else is even being uh, honored, worshipped, except Jesus? And we do that by honoring other people, right? But is Jesus being exalted and honored? That is the only question. Now, I tell a lot of people that the main problem I have with mega churches, you guys know what a mega church is, right? Like churches that are usually uh, maybe a thousand plus. Maybe, maybe 2,000 plus. And you've got some churches out there that are close to 30,000, like Joel Osteen's 
church, if you want to call it that. Um, but you know what? Churches like that, a lot of, of the mega churches out there are what I would call personality driven. Um, you know, in other words, the people are there because they like the pastor, not because they want to come and worship Jesus so much. They, they do that, but if the pastor left, what would happen? And actually, that's what we've seen in Francis Chan's church. If you guys know who Francis Chan is, he's a pastor who used to be in Southern California, um, right around the corner from, or right around the, the hill from the college that I went to. He planted this church that saw an explosion of growth, and he, he's this great preacher, has great ways of illustrating and speaking truth into people's lives, and he saw, you know what, this is becoming way too much about me, and so he left. He, he, he went on, on mission trips, basically, but he, he was kind of undercover. He went over to India, and he was trying to find these small villages where, you know, he could just sit and, and worship and teach, uh, you know, five, six, seven other believers, because for them, it, w- it was all about Jesus. It wasn't about numbers or anything like that. And that was what his heart was seeking after. And as soon as he left Cornerstone, you know what happened? Everybody left. So it was a personality-driven church. It was exactly what he, had af- he was afraid that it had become. It wasn't about Jesus as much as it was about him. And for that reason, he knew that he had to get out of there. Or maybe it becomes about um, certain traditions or ways of, of doing things, and so it becomes about appeasing and entertaining more than about serving in Jesus' name and joining him in his mission of seeking and saving the lost. Now, I've had a few conversations with, with some local pastors around here and, and church leaders around here since the time that I've been here, and I realize that the church attendance in this area is, is on the decline right now, big time. Uh, you know, the church down the street, uh, the one down by Fred Myers, you know, I, I've, I've spoken with them, and, and their, their attendance is down. But let's say that, hypothetically, this, this church down the street saw an explosion in growth. All of a sudden, their, their, their attendance doubled or tripled or, you know, went up ten times. One way to test whether or not what we're doing here is all about Jesus is really to ask something like, well, what, what if they saw this explosion in growth? How would I respond? Would, would, would I be envious? Would, would I wish, wow, I wish the same thing was happening at my church? Or would you just rejoice with them that Jesus is being exalted more and more in the community? Because that's really what it's about. It's not about numbers. It's all about Jesus. See, it, it's, it's really, really important that we not confuse loyalty to Christ with loyalty to a certain body of believers. And we should have both, but we shouldn't get those two things confused. One takes precedence over the other. Loyalty to Christ is first and foremost. Uh, you know, a lot of smaller churches that want to grow into larger churches will, uh, will fall into a second trap of becoming program-driven. For example, let's say that um, Church A uh, starts doing vacation uh, babysitting school, Bible school, excuse me, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, at the same time, I'm being serious. Um, let's say that one church starts doing you know, VBS and they see some growth from it, right? And so church B uh, sees it and says, wow, well, maybe we should be uh, doing the same thing. Maybe we should start the program um, that, they're, that they've used uh, to get some growth. And I'd say that it's better for every church to have a different way of doing things, different programs, uh, diverse ways of doing things because that enables the body of Christ as a whole uh, not, not just one body of believers, but the body of believers 
in the community, uh, it, it enables them to minister to people in different ways, depending on people's different needs. So it's great to, to have programs as long as it's not driven by a program. It needs to be driven by Jesus and nothing else. We should focus on the fact that we have a common goal with other churches, exalting Jesus and honoring Jesus. There's no place for rivalry in the kingdom. The focus should simply be on serving well, serving with the right heart, serving well, and trusting God with the results. So the message here, the the application here, is that greatness isn't based on anything but serving and honoring Jesus by serving and honoring people, the lowest of people the least people. So if someone is honoring and exalting Jesus, if another church is honoring and exalting Jesus, praise God. That's awesome. That's, that's exactly what it's all about. So we rejoice with them because we're all on the same team. You see, if a church is about anything other than Jesus, then we have serious, serious cause for concern. So Jesus is now going to, to give us the second mark of greatness in the kingdom. Verses 41 and 42. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. I have no, no doubt that at, at this point, given the context and what has just happened, remember Jesus was, was talking about greatness and he illustrated it with this little boy. So I have no doubt that Jesus is still hugging this, this child. He's still got his arms wrapped around this, this same uh, child that he embraced when he told the disciples that they must receive someone like this child, uh, somebody who has nothing to offer in return. So Jesus is saying that if you want to serve the kingdom... What he's saying here is that you don't have to do something as great as casting out demons. If you want to serve God, if you want to serve me, if you want to serve the kingdom, you don't have to do something as huge and impressive as casting out unclean spirits or demons from people as this uh, anonymous guy was doing. Now, in the kingdom, even doing something as simple as giving someone a drink of water is noticed and rewarded by God. God's honored and God is pleased when we do something that's as simple as that. So don't ever feel like anything that you do in his name, for his sake, for his glory, is trivial or insignificant. It's not. No matter how trivial it might seem in people's eyes, no matter how trivial it might seem to you, if it's something that you're doing in Jesus' name, it honors God, it exalts Jesus And it's noticed by God. And conversely, if you do something that looks or feels great on the surface, but it doesn't honor or exalt Jesus, it is as trivial, trivial as anything else in the world, no matter how great it might seem. It is ultimately trivial. Now, we should see that Jesus isn't saying that a person who doesn't give someone else a cup of water won't receive a reward. He's not saying you have to, um, you know, if he doesn't give this cup, he's not going to have any kind of reward. You know, the reward that he's talking about is a a place in the kingdom. But, you know, we we can't earn our way into the kingdom by good works. Uh, It's not something that we, we earn by merit. It's not something that we can work toward by achievement. You know, our place in the kingdom is given to us by God's grace through our faith in his son, Jesus, and nothing else. It's just by faith and grace. It's a gift. It is a gift. And a gift, by definition, can't be earned. If it's earned, what is it? 
It's a wage, right. It's something that you deserve and that you are entitled to. A gift, on the other hand, is something that's given to you just because it pleases the giver to give it to you. But let's say you you receive a gift. You receive this Christmas gift, and it's sitting under the tree, and you just decide, I'm not going to take it. Is it still a gift? Yeah, it's still a gift. You just haven't received it. So salvation is a gift that has to be received. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can work for. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Take a look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the reason. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we are who we are in Christ, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's because we're a new creation in Jesus that we are able and that we are desiring to do something in his name. And Jesus is saying that it won't be overlooked or forgotten by God. But while Jesus wants to make it clear that this type of service is important, he also wants us to understand that there's no place for neglecting people. That's, that's what this passage is kind of about. There's no place for neglecting people. Failing to welcome people or receive them, uh, failing to serve them is serious business. In fact, if, if you neglect them, if you disregard them, it's more serious than harming them physically. That's, that's a crazy way of looking at it, but that is what Jesus is saying here. If we neglect a person, there's a good chance of them slipping into sin as a result of our negligence. And so thus, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into, sea, into the sea. Who's the little one? Well, it's the child in this scene, but that's an object lesson. Jesus is talking about the child, but the child he's embracing represents the young, fragile believer who needs to be served, who needs attention, who needs what you have to offer, but doesn't have a lot to offer in return. And so the message here is this, don't disregard anyone, but serve and honor everyone, because by doing that, Jesus is served and honored. See, if we fail to receive and serve people were in sin because we run the risk of causing them to stumble. And I've often said this, that I would rather be in a third world nation scrubbing dirty toilets for a living than causing someone to sin. I'd rather be scrubbing toilets for a living in a third world country than making something all about me. Really. And I mean that. If we fail to center our ministry on Jesus and serving others in Jesus' name, that is exactly what will happen. The people who have the greatest need to be served will be neglected and disregarded if our ministry is centered on anything but Jesus. And so with that in mind, Jesus is now going to shift the, the focus of this discussion to how serious of an issue sin is to him. So we read in Mark uh, the next verses, is, is, and, and you're going to see it's kind of chopped up here, and I'll explain this in just a minute. Uh, verses 43 to 48. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die 
and the fire is not quenched. So the first thing that I, that I got to say here is you'll notice I've left out verses 44 and 46, and that's not accidentally. Anybody um, see one of those black NIV Bibles floating around? Uh, if you take a look in there, you'll see that, that verse, uh, those two verses are completely omitted. Uh, okay, you, you've, you've got it right there. Okay, that's, there's a good reason for that. Um, those, those two verses aren't found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible. Uh, it came along somewhere down the road. Somebody was making an observation that the same principle applies to all three things, and so it's kind of a copyist error. Uh, some monk somewhere uh, put it in the margin, and it was accidentally copied as part of the text, most likely. So uh, most, um, most translations, most, most Bibles are going to reflect that by either italicizing those words or completely omitting them. Uh, but either way, you know, wh- whether they're in there or not, the point is applicable to each of the three parts of the physical body that Jesus is mentioning. Uh, y- you can put it in there the way that you know, some monk did you know, eons ago. The person who takes the type of people represented by this boy seriously has to begin by examining themselves. That's what this is all about, examining yourself. If you're going to value the spiritual growth of others, and if you're going to serve others, it's got to start with you judging yourself, dealing swiftly with sin that might be in your life, and maybe taking drastic measures. Now, what do these things represent? He sa- first he says the hand, then he says the foot, then he says the eye. And these are all representative of things. Your hand represents things that you do, th- actions. Your foot represents the path that you're walking on. Which way are you going? On the path of righteousness or unrighteousness? And the eye represents things that you are intending to do. You set the course to go over there. It's images in your mind, things along those lines. Now, got to point out, so that we don't have any accidents here, we got to point out that Jesus is not saying that you need to literally cut your hand off or cut your foot off or, or gouge your eye out uh, if those things are causing you to sin. Will, those, will doing those things actually cause somebody to stop sinning? Absolutely not. Those, those are just instruments. Those are just tools that you use to commit your sins, but really, sin begins in the heart. It all starts in the heart. Neither your hand nor your foot nor your eye actually cause you to sin or can cause you to sin because you're in control of those things or you're supposed to be in control of those things. But with this type of imagery that Jesus is giving here, it's impossible for us to miss the fact that God takes sin really, really, really seriously. It is not a joking matter for him. While Jesus isn't literally instructing us to sever our limbs or maim our our own bodies, um, he is literally telling us that if something is causing us to sin, deal with it. Deal with it. Swiftly, violently. Do what you have to do. Deal with it. Don't just accept it. Don't go on with it. And that doesn't mean sweeping it under the rug or hiding it in the closet. It means deal with it. Sever the cause, the real cause, the, the trigger of your sin. What is it that's causing you to sin? It means if you're expected to cause, wage war against something that's causing you to sin. For example, if it's a relationship, say, say you're, you're engaging in premarital sex, get out of the relationship, sever it, get out. If it's any type of unhealthy relationship, either get help or get out of it. Deal with it. Deal with whatever in, is in that relationship that's causing you to sin. If, if it's, in, uh, if it's uh, sitting in front of a computer, if that's causing you to sin, throw it out. 
For, uh, seriously, throw your computer away. Anybody uh, seen Fireproof, the movie Fireproof? Yeah, he throws out his computer. Do it. Throw, throw it out if it's causing you to sin. It, it, and if you can't throw it out because you need it for work or whatever, then get yourself an accountability partner. And listen, there, there's accountability software. There's software that monitors the websites that you go to um, that, you can, that you can be accountable to with another person. Uh, so do that. Sign up for this accountability software and, and get an accountability partner. Uh, if it's burying yourself in financial debt with impulsive spending, then cut up your credit card or, or don't go to the mall or whatever. Do what you have to do to deal with your sin. The message here is to take swift and drastic measures, maybe even violent measures, to overcome sin in your life because it would be better for you to have lost that relationship or for you to have lost your computer or for you to have cut up your credit card or whatever tempts you to sin than it would be for you to sin and end up in hell because of your sin. It's better for you to just live without and deal with the discomfort of doing without than to have it and sin. Now we need to understand that Jesus, by the way, he's not saying that you can lose your salvation here. That, that's not uh, what, what he's saying at, at all. That you know, if you commit a sin, uh, you, know, you, you, might, you might be thrown into hell. He's not saying it's even possible for us to completely overcome sin in our lives. What he's saying is that this is the attitude that you have to have towards sin. This is the, the attitude of discipleship. If you want to successfully bring honor and glory to God, by serving others. Now, we, we need to see how this relates to the previous verse, verse 42, where Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Yeah, we, we need to see how that relates to what he's saying about sin here. Um, not too many years ago, I think it was 2004, maybe it was 2005, there was a wildly popular preacher in the Colorado Springs area. Some of you are going to know who I'm talking about. This guy was so wildly popular, uh, you know, he, he was the president of the National Evangelical Association. Uh, he, was, he was big time. He, he was huge. Uh, he, he had books. He had interviews on primetime television. I, I remember watching Barbara Walters interview this guy. Uh, he had a church of over 10,000 people, huge church, and he had an addiction to crystal meth. Yeah. In fact, he got busted for buying crystal meth from a male homosexual prostitute. Anybody remember that? Yeah, we remember that. It was big news. He got busted. Uh, it sent shockwaves through the evangelical community. His sin had not only caused a lot of people in his community and, and abroad to, uh, to mock Christianity, but his church fell apart at the seams, and a lot of unbelieving people in his community who might have been ministered to by that church or maybe by other churches, they were no longer interested in having anything to do with the church because they see this guy as the ultimate hypocrite. He's serving people, but man, he's got something in the closet that he's hiding, and, it's, and it destroys his ministry. Ted Haggard was this pastor's name. He didn't deal with his sin, he didn't work to overcome his sin, and the result was that his sin overcame him, and it destroyed his credibility as a minister for Jesus, destroyed his credibility for serving, because nobody wants to be served by a hypocrite. Nobody wants advice from a hypocrite. Now, for just a minute, can you, can you imagine what it must feel like to be in his shoes can you imagine the, the burden that he has? Can you imagine what it must feel like to wake up every day knowing that there are people who maybe rejected Christ because of your actions? 
I mean, I, I believe that if, if Jesus is going to call someone, he'll, he'll go after them. But you've got to wonder, is there anybody who just completely forgot about this gift of salvation, left it under the tree because of what I did? I can't even fathom, I can't even begin to fathom the weight of that kind of burden. But now you know why Jesus says it would be better for you to be cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck. Man, I don't know about you guys, but I would rather die than have to wake up every day with that kind of burden laying on my shoulders. That millstone, man, isn't anywhere near as heavy as the burden of sin that's been made public. And so Jesus wants us to know that if we love people, if we want to serve them, the way that we've been instructed to serve them, we have to keep ourselves pure in the process. We have to be willing to look in the mirror and keep ourselves pure. Why? Jesus tells us in the next verse, which is one of those verses that makes some people scratch their heads. We'll deal with it. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 49. He says, For, so because, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what does that mean? And does everyone mean everyone? Like literally everyone? Or when we're talking about everyone, does he mean just followers of Jesus? Uh, some would say yes. Some would say no. You know, there are a lot of different interpretations on this verse. But really what Jesus is saying here is that this is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following Jesus. It's self-discipline or discipline of some sort. Dealing with sin. The fire represents judgment and Jesus is saying that we must either judge ourselves, that is, by, by dealing with our sin and dealing with it swiftly, or we can face the consequences of sin. Maybe that means being judged by others. Was Ted Haggard disciplined? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Like, like you would not believe. I mean, he, he lost everything, not just his credibility. He lost a lot of stuff. But that's the mark of someone who's a true believer. Somebody who receives discipline in the middle of their sin. Somebody who gets dragged out into the light because they won't come out themselves. The book of Hebrews says that God will discipline his children. Every child he receives, he scourges. So praise the Lord for Ted Haggard. Because I would say, yeah, the fact that he was disciplined the way that he was indicates he's legit. You know, he, he, he's a real believer. And he was disciplined. He was put into the fire because he wouldn't deal with his sin. Man, there is nothing like a trip out behind the divine woodshed um, <laughs> to keep you tossing and turning at night. That is discipline. He, Ted Haggard didn't discipline himself, and so God brought discipline into his life. And we have to understand that this is just and this is good. It's good when we are disciplined. If we won't discipline ourselves... It's good if others discipline us. So Jesus continues saying salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. First of all, have you ever heard of salt becoming unsalty? Okay, just making sure. Uh, what does salt represent here? Salt is a purifying and cleansing agent. So again, salt represents self-discipline and judgment. Uh, of ourselves and, if necessary, of each other in a community of people who are committed to keeping one another at a certain level of holiness. You know, we, we in America have this misconception that if we love somebody, it means that we have to allow them to continue in doing whatever gives them pleasure, whatever makes them happy. It means we have to endorse their lifestyle. 
or whatever they're doing, whatever sin they are committing, whether that means you know, maybe doing drugs, uh, maybe it means endorsing homosexual marriage, or, or what have you. We, we have this idea that that's what it means to love somebody. But friends, love does not stand by as a cheerleader while somebody is walking in sin. Love does not cheer on sin. To love someone means you want the greatest good for them. And the greatest good is that they would not sin. That they would become like God. That they would serve God because they're becoming more and more like him. That is the greatest good. If you love someone, that is really what you want for them. And if you don't, you don't love them. God's love, and we know that God is working all things for our good, right? But that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. It probably means that there are going to be storms in our life that Jesus is going to lead us through, and it'll be for our own good. We'll come out better because we've gone through it. That's the refiner's fire. That's what Jesus is talking about here, judgment of ourselves. Now, Peter would go on to understand this principle of going through the fire. He'd write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be willing to go through the fire of discomfort that comes when you deal with sin. No matter what the personal cost might be, no matter how uncomfortable or how difficult it might be, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. It's better than receiving God's discipline. Sometimes that means being persecuted for your faith. Other parts of the country or of the world, that's what you see. You don't really see it here in America. You don't see, commonly see people being uh, killed for their faith in Jesus, but it does happen around the world. But it, it, whatever it means, it means dealing with sin and cutting the connection with the things that are causing you to sin because there is nothing in this world that is worth sinning for. Nothing. Nothing. So again, Jesus isn't saying that you can lose your salvation by sinning. Rather, he's letting us know that there can be consequences in this life for having sin that remains unhindered, right, and isn't dealt with. And that we have to do this if we're going to serve others because we don't want our sin to become a stumbling block for others. And we don't want to give Jesus a bad rap by not representing him well. Now, one final note here. Jesus is saying it's better to do this than to end up in in hell. The word that Jesus uses for hell here is Gehenna. Gehenna was, a, was this large valley. Uh, that what, what they would do, what the, what the Romans and the, and the Israelites and everybody would do was throw their waste, throw anything that's disposable into this valley, and it would just burn day and night in this pile of burning waste. And so Jesus is saying that if sin prevails in your life, if it's not dealt with now, it's a waste. It's a waste in the big picture. Your life is a waste in the big picture, no matter how successful it might seem on the outside. If you're serving rather than sinning, that's what God wants. But sin will prevent you from serving. Now, this passage really began last week. This is really part two of of the same passage. Uh, it, It began last week with the disciples bickering among each other, fighting about who was the greatest among them, right? 
disharmony, and it ends with Jesus telling us to deal with the sin in our lives, which results in peace with one another. If there's one thing that will disrupt peace among believers, it is sin. It's sin. As we started our study today, you know, again, there wasn't peace with this other believer. So what we're seeing is discord, dysfunction among all these believers, including this believer they don't, they don't even personally know. Right? They, they tried to bring this other ministry that was being done in Jesus' name to a halt. There wasn't peace. There was sin. There was sin. There was pride that needed to be dealt with. Sin that stemmed from ignorance, maybe, at least on John's behalf, but which was nevertheless sin. So the challenge here, the challenge here is to deal with any sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. And for that same humility, the same humble spirit that you need to deal with your sin, that'll carry over when you serve people. That's the same type of spirit that's necessary to receive and serve others in Jesus' name. The person who can do these type of things is the person who fits God's definition of greatness, true greatness. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to confess to you today that sometimes we make it about things other than you. Sometimes we make it about things that really just don't matter, and only you matter here, Lord. And so we we confess that to you, and we, we ask for your grace. Lord, we thank you so much for the message that we received here. The, the lessons in here are so brutally difficult, Lord. We know that without the instruction, the conviction of your Holy Spirit, we would be lost. So we thank you for sending him, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict our hearts, help us to deal with sin, so that there can be peace among us. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.